Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a murder that occurred in 2001. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. I'm remembering a guy named Jeremiah. Any of your notes reflect that? I called the FBI and never heard back from him. There had been a failure of the protocols of the U.S. attorney. The number one priority was the Wales death investigation. I'm in a foreign country right now. This is episode four, The Usual Suspects. I'm your host, David Payne. who know who we killed will you. never give up our search for the truth. We will never I have no idea. Up. It could have been a, a vacuum cleaner salesman. I never thought I'd be here 15 years later. Hello? Hey, Carl Schlaff on Denver. Hey, Carl, how are you? I'm well, yourself? I'm good. Thanks for calling me back. I'm on a plane, so I'm going to have to hang up in a sec. No um, worries. I'm, I'm, I'm drowning a worm on a lake, so. Jody and I were still wrapping our heads around this whole Scott Lee Kimball thing. We didn't quite know what to make of Agent Schloff, Kimball's FBI handler in Denver. He was friendly and helpful, and he even offered to take us to Kimball at the Federal Pen in Colorado. Well, I can get access to Kimball, too. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I can. I think he'll still talk to me. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Kimball's just sitting in the joint. He's, he's got 30 years, 40 years or whatever. And, I, and I've been meaning to go see him. Now that I'm retired, I can kind of do that. Wow. As tempted as we were to hear what Kimball would tell us, our plans were thwarted when Kimball was indicted yet again for a murder plot he had hatched in jail. And in the end... As interesting as the whole Kimball saga was, what relevance was it really? Would it shed any new light on who killed Tom Wales, or was it just a con? What did he tell the FBI? Do you remember who in Seattle FBI was his main contact? Would that have been Bone or Sousa? Yeah, it was Bone. Bone. It was Bone. So Bone worked with him? Yeah, Bone worked with him. Don't be surprised. Bone doesn't have a lot of good to say about me or certainly about Kimball. And was the FBI ever able to corroborate any of this stuff about Jeremiah? I don't believe so. The general summary of whatnot, they thought Kimball was not telling the truth. It was a dead end? Yeah. He couldn't pass the polygraph, but, you know, guys like that don't pass polygraphs. Right. So, yeah, it was feeling like a dead end. But Schloff didn't know the details, or he wasn't forthcoming on that front. And we needed to make sure. For weeks... Jody and I had been trying to talk to the lead case agent on the Wales case, a man named Ron Bone. This was the same Ron Bone who went over his boss's head to Steve Clymer and Robert Mueller when she tried to take him off the case. We had been emailing Bone and thought we might never get through. But one fall Saturday afternoon, 
Jody and I were at a Starbucks in Bellevue, tracking down a witness. When my phone rang, it was Ron Bone. Like many other witnesses, Bone first said he didn't want to talk to me, but I didn't let that resistance take hold. And with a series of rapid-fire questions about the case, the biggest of his career, well, he kind of warmed up to the inquiry. He didn't want to talk to me on tape, but we did speak from 3 in the afternoon to sunset. Tell me what just happened. So I just got off the phone, a a two-and-a-half-hour conversation with Ron Bone, and he was the lead investigator on the case, and he shared with me a lot of thoughts about a lot of topics that have been, frankly, bothering us all this time. What did Bone say about Scott Lee Kimball and the information that on the Wales case? We said it was a, a really weird thing that Kimball had come up with this story that was corroborated by what he said were a few fluky record things that implicated Jeremiah, this person that we heard about. And he said that it sounded like Kimball was this guy who, you know, worked the jail cell to find any kind of advantage that he could. And he said, we spent a lot of time on him. And he explained that this Jeremiah guy was in jail in Alaska at the time. And Bone even went to Anchorage to suss out that lead. Ultimately, we washed the guy out, meaning we decided it was not truthful testimony. But he said that our mindset was... We've either got to prove or disprove this. And in this case, they felt like they had disproved the whole Jeremiah angle. So yeah, dead end, at least according to Bone. But was it a dead end in terms of understanding why the Wales case had never had an indictment? You see, one of the problems you can create for yourself as an investigator on a case with a lot of leads is creating what we call bad discovery material, which then can create reasonable doubt when someone is arrested for a crime. In this case, by chasing this Kimball lead so hard, no matter how harebrained it turned out to be, the FBI was creating a paper trail for an alternative theory of the case, something that even Agent Schloff knew enough to know was a problem if anyone was ever arrested. Yeah, Kimball didn't pass, so there's a little bit of burn from the divisions because they put stuff in writing. This is back when the email stuff was just coming out where if you put it in writing versus, you know, a traditional 302, obviously we're going to, it's discoverable, but emails, that kind of stuff. And I remember a pretty heated discussion I had with the agents out there about, you know, what the hell are you putting this in writing for on an email? Because what do I, you know, I got to put this in the file. So I can, in fact, imagine those heated conversations. You see, the FBI would, of course, want to track down every lead. But with work comes paperwork. And with paperwork comes credence lent to every crazy theory captured in ink. The type of credence that can make a case politically difficult to bring for fear of running smack into reasonable doubt. You see... Any defense attorney worth their salt would milk the Kimball angle and create a boogeyman in Jeremiah or wherever that testimony would take you. And even if a jury never found that angle credible, just by virtue of a public trial, the case would present in all its public glory the extent of the FBI and DOJ disaster. And so I wondered, 
Would they really want to air all that dirty laundry? Or would it make the prosecutor, Steve Clymer, less inclined to bring the case to indictment? With no answers to those questions, and Kimball locked down for his latest murder attempt, we decide to put a pin in it, and we turn our attention to more viable theories. And at the end of the day, who had a motive to kill Tom Wales? And if Ralph was right, and this was a professional hit, who wanted Tom Wales dead? I asked FBI agent David Gomez to give us the big picture. Seems like there was a lot of focus, and maybe rightly so, because that was the primary evidence that was left behind. But there seems to be a lot of focus on the gun and the barrels and the ballistics and the evidence that was recovered. Do you feel like there was as much focus on basic motive determination, elimination of suspects and the like? Motive is not something that's required to prove the crime. Motive is something that's required in trial to help convince your jury that you got the right guy. But it's not part and partial to the what's the, the term the body of the crime. The motive in the absence of a suspect helps you narrow the suspect pool. It's basically what you do. So, as a profiler, you have a very large suspect pool of people who might have wanted to murder Tom Wales, and now you begin to look at who has the best motive for doing that. So I wondered, was Tom Wales the kind of guy that had a lot of enemies? As we started our investigation, we learned a lot about Tom Wales. And frankly, now seems like a good time to share some of that. One of our earliest trips was to Bainbridge Island to meet with Tom's good friend, Dan Dubitsky. Your attention, please. We are now arriving at our destination. Please make sure that you have all of your personal belongings before disembarking. I've gotten the impression that he has a million best friends, meaning that he was somehow able to get close enough and earn the trust of many, many people. Yes. If he was to others as he was to me, I can certainly see why he had a million best friends. And I've, since his passing, I've come to understand that. He kind of made you feel like you were his only best friends. Dan Dubitsky is a soft-spoken man in his early 60s who lives with his wife and Bernese mountain dog Spot in a home overlooking a field of wildflowers. A serious health fight, stage four cancer, has forced Dan to retire from his career as a defense attorney. He has to reschedule our interview twice to recover from treatments that leave his body weak. But he's of sound and clear mind, still carrying a profound and heavy sense of loss for his friend Tom. Well, I just couldn't imagine that anyone would murder him. Such a civilized, decent man always trying to do the right thing. Dan remembers exactly where he was when he heard the news. I was headed for a meeting at the University of Washington and saw in the very early news that an assistant U.S. attorney had been shot at close range on Queen Anne. And, you know, you read about denial. So when the pieces that were obvious to everyone else fell into place, I was shocked. In the hallway of the University of Washington Medical Center, I just stood by myself and I just cried. 
One of the things I thought, you know, that spoke volumes about him was I had a, at the time, teenage son who was having some difficulties academically, other things. Tom was remodeling his house, the basement that we all know about, and he offered to have my son move into his house. He would have him work on the house with him during this difficult period. And he didn't offer me once, but he offered me a half dozen times. So it was one of those incredibly earnest offers that totally impressed me. These shirt-off-your-back sentiments were echoed by one of Tom's other best friends, Ralph Fascitelli. He was just extremely thoughtful and funny, and he had this incredible sense of self. He knew his true north, and he was interdirected, but he was also incredibly unselfish with his time and stuff like that. He was kind of the anti-bully, the anti-narcissist. You know, people that engaged with him were a high-achieving crowd, but... Tom played the game at, at just a higher level, and we were all a little bit in awe of him. And almost ashamed to say that because we were all competitive, but we we're all a little bit in awe of Tom. It's easy, of course, to lionize the dead, to paint a wholesome picture. The thing is, by most accounts, Thomas Crane Wales was not only a good father and friend, but he was kind of an Atticus Finch a community activist who fought for gun control after a shootout at a local high school, and a federal prosecutor who fought against the bad guys. Of course, that wasn't the whole story. No one with any earned wrinkles on their brows is perfect. But on the whole, that was the picture that was emerging as we talked to his friends and colleagues. Nevertheless, one theme about his personality, especially when he was litigating, kept emerging in our interviews— And we couldn't help wonder if that trait may have inadvertently put him in harm's way. Do you remember what you first thought as Tom's friend and colleague? Tom and I both could be pretty hard-headed people. And we'd been pretty good friends. But in this particular case, we'd had some pretty strong headbutting. That word, headbutting, it caught my attention. It's something I remember Dan mentioning, too and liked him quite a lot immediately. But as a result of my job being a criminal defense lawyer and his job of being a prosecutor, we were butting heads almost immediately, literally within days of my meeting him. But this stubbornness, the prickliness that his friends and colleagues describe, even that has a certain wholesomeness to it. Dan pulls out a legal file he dug out in preparation for our interview. It's his Tom Wales folder. And he reaches in to retrieve a commencement speech that Tom gave a few months before his death. This reminds me of the same way he handled me and the same way we work our cases against one another. He says, disagree with me? He says, all caps, go ahead, please do. And then he says, be pro-life, pro-gun, pro-death penalty, pro-poverty, pro-neglect of the mentally ill who make up such a huge proportion of our homeless population, good for you. Just get involved. Hey, I think I'm right, but I've been wrong before. Go through that door and come battle me on these issues. More power to you. But get involved. God, that sounds like him.
I wondered how Tom's courtroom or debating personality had played out in his marriage and with his family. He had recently been divorced just two years prior to his death. And although by all accounts we had read, he had had an amicable relationship with his ex-wife, you know you always have to look there first in any murder. In fact, odds are, if there's a murder, then one of the big three are involved. Money, love, or jealousy. I asked Agent Gomez what the FBI did to rule these motives in or out. Where would they have started in this case? In any homicide, you're going to start with family. You have to eliminate spouses and relatives and immediate family as suspects before you can kind of move on to other people, unless there's a clear indication that the murder occurred by someone who was not related to the family. But a person killed in their own house, the first person you have to eliminate is any family members who lived in the house or had access to the house. Girlfriends. Girlfriends, spouses, ex-spouses, even neighbors. You know, you want to know where where were you at the time of of the shooting. I was curious. Was there a conflict in the resolution of his marriage that remained open? I decided to ask Ralph. You know, his marriage broke up because his wife came out of the closet. And Tom was heartbroken about that. And and Tom, you know, after he kind of grasped what was happening and, and got over it, he was incredibly supportive of Elizabeth. And she still had an office in their house. She was a literary agent. And they were good friends, you know? And they realized that what mattered here was the family. And they still loved each other. And he was supportive at a time when Elizabeth wasn't getting support from her parents in New York and stuff like that. Everyone we spoke to echoed this appraisal of Tom's marriage and divorce. It was difficult, it was hard. But Tom and his wife Elizabeth seemed to have worked it all out. If not for them, then for the sake of their children. But the fact that the two shared the house, her working there during the day and him living there at night, well, that spoke volumes to me. I couldn't imagine such a scenario if they weren't amicable. And the FBI concurred in this assessment, something corroborated to me by Agent Bone. But if not the ex-wife, then what about the women he was dating? Tell me about Tom's personal life at the time of the killing. Tom was recently separated. And for a number of years, he kind of had a few extra pounds on him. When he became a single man, for whatever reason, he became very fit. You know, he was always somewhat fit, but a divorce makeover. Everybody, he, does it, it. it was. He became extremely fit, but he had more free time, and he was dating. And he had one woman in particular that he was spending a lot of time with, and I think trying to make a decision of, you know, should he stay focused or should he stay footloose and fancy free? And it was a really difficult decision for him, and I don't think it was resolved. Did that lead to any kind of hard feelings that you know? Well, I think any woman who knew Tom fell in love with him. You know, he was every woman's dream without trying to be. He was handsome, he was fun, he was smart. You know, he was just he was just great company. So I think he was getting a lot of female attention. I think he was in a dilemma. I don't think Tom never lied to anybody. I mean, he I think he didn't want to hurt anybody. So he was kind of torn, I know, between figuring out if he just wanted to go solely, you know, in a one-on-one relationship or if he needed more time to figure out what he wanted. The woman that Tom was dating at the time, 
or more specifically, the woman that Tom had this dilemma about, was Marlise DeJong. Tom had been emailing her just before he was shot. What was her alibi? Had she gotten so mad about Tom's unwillingness to commit that she shot him? The FBI wasn't talking about her, so the educated money had to be that they had a reason to rule her out. We reached out to DeJong on many occasions, and despite her desire to find justice for Tom, she would not speak with us about the case. But what was getting some play at the FBI was this notion of a jealous boyfriend. Had Tom, who was playing the field after his divorce, slept with the wrong somebody? I had asked Ron Bone about this during our phone call. David, I'm curious if he got into other suspects and motives around the Wales case. On that front, he said that the various theories that they explored, of of all of them, the jealous boyfriend got a lot of attention. He told me that Tom had had a number of romantic relationships at the time. And, you know, he was really hoping when he first got involved in the case, it would be something as simple as that, something as simple as a star-crossed lover or a fight over a fence. On the personal motive side, he did offer this. He said, you know, people can lead a life that other people don't know about. Think about it. The guy lived alone. He had a lot of money. He was a good-looking guy. He had a lot of discretion. And so he didn't point at any particular theory of that case, but he did offer up that, you know, sometimes you just don't know. And the FBI still didn't know some four years later when Agent Gomez came on the case. But it was clear by that time that internally they weren't even pursuing the jealous boyfriend angle. There was, again, allegations that Tom had a girlfriend and there may have been an involvement of a, a jealousy, maybe a, of another person involved in that. That was never really something that I heard a lot about. Regardless of the FBI's conclusion. Jody and I will keep searching for more information on this possibility in the coming weeks. Because it seems to us, when there's no financial motive involved, and you're looking for someone who is mad enough to kill, murder usually involves love. In our society, there are few issues that rile emotions as much as love and money. Abortion rights come to mind, but so do guns. And Tom Wales, with his prickly personality and righteous sense of justice, well, he put himself square in the crosshairs of people who love them. Hi, I saw your campaign to make AR-15s illegal in Washington State. I hope somebody walks up to you with their AR-15 and sprays your blood and guts home. If somebody did, I would stand up and cheer. This is the kind of call routinely received by Washington Ceasefire, a Seattle gun control group that Tom Wales was the president of. I wanted to learn more about the organization, so I asked Ralph if I could attend one of their board meetings. Ralph has taken up the mantle of president, where the group is now advocating the adoption of smart guns rather than legislation as a way to reduce gun violence. Um, David's going to sit in for the first part of the meeting and maybe even take the first part of the meeting and and get a sense. But um, 
As I'm listening on the meeting, everyone's eating finger sandwiches and drinking wine, and, well, they seem like a really nice group of people just trying to make their city safer. It's hard for me to fathom that Tom's work for Ceasefire so enraged someone that they would kill him for it. But then again, this is guns we're talking about, and people love guns as much as they love other people. I asked the most senior member of the Ceasefire board, a woman named Jeanette Ashman, what she thinks about this notion that Tom may have been killed because of his work on gun control. Do you think what happened to Tom was related to his work with Washington Ceasefire? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, Why? sure. Well, he was a leader of our group. And as a leader, and I know Ralph has had him, you get death threats. I've been with Ceasefire from the very beginning, and I got letters and death threats. And I'm a widow of my... Jeanette Ashman is in her 80s now, and I struggle with the thought of death threats to this lovely woman. And if she's getting them, didn't that paint a huge target on whales back? You see, in 2001, things were pretty chippy between the gun rights and gun control movements in Washington state. Over the past three years, there had been many attempts to regulate guns in the state. And Tom was the point man in debates for ceasefire, something that Jeanette says he handled with political deafness. This was a guy who could talk. He could meet with someone on the other side where emotionally I would freak out. I would no longer be able to talk to them. Because of disagreements or you well, were fearful? Well, it's more than disagreement. <laughs> I mean, it's, and is it okay if I mention names? Absolutely. Okay, well, well, let's say Alan Gottlieb, who is the Second Amendment Foundation. Tom would be able to sit down with this individual. One of the things I read about what he said afterwards was that maybe it was somebody on the Washington ceasefire side who took care of Tom because it was a fundraising effort. Horrendous. Absolutely despicable. Alan knew better than that. He just, you know, he had to voice it. We wanted to know if that was true. Did Alan Gottlieb really know better? Or did he by virtue of running the gun rights lobby in Washington, really have insight into who killed Tom Wales, no matter how crazy that sounded. Jody and I schedule an interview with this Alan Gottlieb, the founder and CEO of the Second Amendment Foundation in Bellevue, Washington. We've stopped by Starbucks on the way and bring an offering of a grande black coffee. I'm going to need to, Alan, just have you do a mic check for me, if you don't mind. My name is Alan Gottlieb, and I actually grew up in Queens, New York. Then I moved, went away to college in Tennessee, and then I worked in D.C. a little bit. Okay, I'm ready to okay go. you ready to go? I am. I should also point out that we share the same last name but are not related. At least we don't think so. We don't think so. <laughs> so. Have you done your 23andMe yet? I, we don't believe we're related. Yeah, I'm on 23andMe. Yeah. Yeah, are you? <laughs> yeah. Well, who yeah. knows? We can make a connection here. Okay. No relation, Gottlieb, is an unlikely ambassador for the gun rights movement in Washington. At maybe five foot seven, he's wearing a red plaid shirt and khakis and has the countenance of an overworked accountant on April 14th. I asked Gottlieb what the foundation does. 
Is it a nonprofit association? What kind of organization is it? It's a nonprofit. It's national. We have about 650,000 members and contributors nationwide. And what we're most known for is our legal actions, our lawsuits. About 80% of the case law made supporting Second Amendment rights has been won by the Second Amendment Foundation or our attorneys. That's 650,000 members, folks. Quite a contrast to the gathering of a dozen people in Ralph's living room. Proud of his group's accomplishments, Gottlieb prattles off their legislative and legal wins like a seasoned auctioneer. Legal battles that knocked out anti-gun laws recently in Washington, D.C. We're not here to talk about policy or lawsuits. We're here to find out what Gottlieb knows about the Tom Wales killing. I also want to give him a chance to back off the politically charged statements he made after Tom's murder. So at the time of the killing, you were quoted with some pretty provocative statements about Tom Wales and who possibly might have killed him. Can you share with us your thinking on that? Was that heat of the moment or? No, actually, it wasn't heat of the moment. You know, looking back at it then and now, in my mind, the possibilities were somebody in the gun rights movement, which I didn't really think was up on the top of the list. But, you know, you had to look at that. Somebody, family or friend of family, somebody obviously knew he worked in the basement of his house, you know, and knew where he'd be at what time in order to pull this off. One of the reasons why I didn't think it was a gun owner was is that a gun owner wouldn't have left shell casings. So let's talk about that. I remember they left shell casings. Anybody on, on our side would not have been that stupid to have done that. It would have been somebody that wasn't that familiar with a gun, in my opinion. Well, so you think they would have picked a different weapon? Sure. Such uh, as? Such as a revolver that wouldn't leave a shell casing. I mean, those shell casings can go pretty far away. It could have been that the killer thought that he would be able to pick them up. And well, anybody up. who shoots a gun knows they bounce, and you know, especially if you're doing this at night. If you've ever had a gun on a gun range, you know, the brass goes all over the place. So you think it was somebody who's completely unfamiliar with guns who just went up there and shot him on that particular occasion and didn't even think about the fact that there would be shell casings? Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure what to make of this argument, so I pressed Gottlieb for more. You think because it was a sloppy execution, it wouldn't have been somebody in the gun rights? Yeah. Also, the thing is, is that, you know, a Makarov isn't that common a, a gun. You would have used more of a commonly known firearm. It wouldn't have just been a 3,000 of them out there or something. There would have been, you know, 3 million of them out there. I still wasn't ready to buy into this notion. But Gottlieb had other arguments to buttress his case. I guess not something surprising, given that the man litigates for a living. And it didn't matter that he had to throw the victim under the bus to make his point. I honestly never thought that it was somebody on the pro-gun side, so to speak, that was involved in it. Why do you say that? Because if Tom would have been successful in anything he did against gun rights, then I'd say, okay. But he wasn't successful, and at the point when that happened, it was like, you know, he was no longer at his peak. He was sort of like on his way down. It wouldn't have made any sense. To summarize Gottlieb, Tom was an easy foil, so there was no motive for anyone in the gun rights movement to take him out. Plus, they wouldn't have been so stupid as to pick a weapon that would leave behind casings as evidence. Okay, so I get that. That made some sense on its face. But then the conversation with Gottlieb turned weird. And then the other possibilities there, going back to his involvement on the gun debate, somebody who worked with him in the anti-gun community that basically, in my opinion, wanted control of the organization and somebody that was not happy with Tom Wales running it and, quite frankly, taking credit for a lot of work other people did. And at the same time, it's another murder, another reason to get rid of guns. 
Wow. So that I mean, that's a pretty Machiavellian type of scenario. Yeah, and uh, some of the people that work with Tom were kind of Machiavellian. <laughs> I mean, they really were. And one person, and I can't remember his name, so it's not that I'm trying to hide who he is. In fact, he ended up writing for one of the Seattle Weekly newspapers afterwards, but he worked very closely with Tom at Ceasefire, or the, one of the competing groups. I'm not exactly sure. And he was, to me, a little bit weird, because I'd be with him some of these debates as well. He never had nice things to say, really, about Tom in private. And if you're sitting with someone like me on the other side, you don't give me ammunition about Tom. And there was sort of like a, a rivalry there, and not just with this person, but other people on, who worked on Tom's side of the issue. He wasn't as well-liked as people would believe from his own community. But you think he was not well enough like for someone to kill him and try well, to well, not just, take his place? I mean, Well, I wouldn't think it was because he wasn't that well liked to kill him, but maybe if somebody could gain something from it, like he control the organization or whatever it might be on the other side, if there's something that vault them forward by getting rid of him. Yeah, I think it's, it's as plausible as anything else. If I'm not mistaken, he did media public affairs stuff for either Pam's group or for Tom's group. I was doing my best to remain neutral in this interview, to get the facts and then evaluate them later. But I couldn't help thinking, this theory of a media affairs guy wanting to off Tom so he could vault forward in the gun control movement was just a little too far-fetched to take seriously. I felt like I was being gaslighted, and it seemed to me that it was much more likely that Tom was in harm's way from people on the other side of this debate. I recall what Ralph had told me a few weeks earlier about his last conversation with Tom. What did you all discuss that you mentioned that turned a little dark? Well, I just thought Tom was very brave. You know, we worked together at Washington Ceasefire for a couple of years, and he got a lot of blowback from gun rights extremists and a lot of threats. None of that seemed to phase Tom. I never saw him show fear in any kind of instance. And there were reasons to do that sometimes. But when I pressed Ralph on whether he thought someone had carried out those threats that he and Tom so often received, he surprises me, and he agrees with Gottlieb, although for entirely different reasons. You seem fairly confident that Washington ceasefire, the work that Tom did, had nothing to do with his killing. I do. I think there's an irony here. I, I think when you look at gun safety groups, versus gun rights groups is a natural animosity. But I think, you know, in my experience, I think in Tom's experience, when we dealt with folks on the other side on a one-on-one basis and a personal basis, we surprisingly liked them. But more importantly, they had a code. They seemed to have a code. And I don't know of any instance where somebody from a gun rights group has attacked or certainly shot somebody from a gun safety organization. It's just not what they do. These threats that come through, and you shared with us one of those, are pretty harsh. They are pretty harsh, and I think they get filtered through the code of the larger organizations. Now, that doesn't mean there couldn't be some rogue person. And let's face it, the gun rights people have won this debate now for the last 25 or 30 years, so there wasn't much for them to be angry about, you know, and, and fuss with public opinion by doing something over the top by assassinating, you know, the president of Washington ceasefire. So, and this sounds kind of silly, but it's true. The crackpots, for the most part, are far away. 
It's like ISIS being in the Middle East is one reason the U.S. doesn't get it. Well, if they crack parts in Idaho and stuff like that, we might just get a phone call. By the time they get to Seattle, hopefully they haven't planned. This was a well-planned assassination. And I don't know if the crackpots are really up to that. Whether the crackpots were or weren't up to that, Ralph had one other point he wanted to make that resonated with me. If somebody does assassination, would do it in part because he could go back and be a big shot within the group. If somebody assassinated Tom, I can guarantee you, and went back to some of these gun rights groups and did that, they said, what are you, fucking crazy? You know, do you want to blow it and stuff like that? It is not in their code to do that. Code or no code, and whether Alan or Ralph were right in their assessments, that Tom's killing had nothing to do with gun rights. We wanted to know what the FBI did or did not do to rule out leads related to Tom's work at Ceasefire. Did the FBI ever talk to you or people in your organization? They didn't talk to me, but I think they did talk to one of my staff people, knowing if we had any information or, you know, could shed any light on it. But I was surprised no one ever did talk to me, uh, to be perfectly candid about it. Why do you think they didn't talk to you? I have absolutely no idea, because on the other side, if you're thinking, either they just felt that nobody in the art community was, you know, involved in it, or no, nobody would shed any light on anything with it. Do you know whether or not the FBI went out to any kind of gun rages out in this area and tried to find out if people were shooting Makarovs? I don't know. I've never heard anything about that. Can't say they did or they didn't. You didn't hear it from your members or... Actually, I don't heard nobody that said they were even contacted by investigators and law enforcement. I was kind of surprised. Really? That seems odd to me. Yeah, it seemed odd to me, too. I mean, it's like, you know, everyone's like waiting to get contacted. Nobody got contacted. Nobody got contacted, and yep, it seemed odd to me, too. The whole damn thing. Not just Gottlieb's martyr theory, but the fact that the FBI didn't even talk to the head of the largest gun rights lobby in the state and the public nemesis of Tom Wales and gun policy debates. But after examining these theories, both the personal and the ceasefire angles, we were no closer to identifying anyone with a clear motive and means to kill Tom Wales. And so we were left with the other possibility, that Tom Wales was killed because of his work as an AUSA. This was something that had never happened before, at least in modern history. So on its face, it would have to seem highly improbable. But it's where, Agent Ron Bone told me, the FBI spent a lot of time. And after learning what we had so far about Tom's personal life and his prickly courtroom persona, even I could now see the point being made by the erstwhile Alan Gottlieb. I can understand where somebody that legally Tom went up against, you know, or prosecuted, could get upset with him because Tom sometimes would go overboard. And he wouldn't win friends sometimes. And I could see him in a courtroom whereby, you know, he'd go a little overcharged or over whatever and you can antagonize somebody. So there we were. Had Wales antagonized the wrong person? Was the answer to who killed Tom Wales, not just in the FBI's files, but in Tom Wales' case files? Next week on Somebody Somewhere. I've been going through every pleading that has the word Wales in it for the past couple days. Wow. 
I don't know if you're familiar with an outfit called Air America. And I had no idea that the underlying conduct was even a crime. He really liked his lifestyle. He liked to have his girls and his guns and his cars. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Somebody Somewhere is written and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. It is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. If you're making your first podcast or if you're a seasoned veteran, it doesn't matter. These guys are both professional and personable, and we couldn't have done this show without them. Check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. Original score and voiceover work provided by Hallie Payne. A Foolish Game is written and performed by Snowflake. If you have any information regarding the Tom Wales case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you for listening.